You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. They sent an email asking who would like to step in, and for the first time in, I don't know, two, two to five years, I was the first one to reply to the email. <laughs> and I volunteered to do because the main reason is um, this is a very personal passage for me. Um, Long story, very short, leave out a lot of the details, but um, after high school I attended Bible college and my first year of Bible college came about two weeks before graduation um, in my first year before school was out and I got kicked out of college. And um, my, um, it's part of my testimony because the president of the college led me to the Lord and um, so something good comes out of that. But I had to make the phone call to dad and tell him to come get me. And that's a hard phone call. And then as the son, in this passage, you don't know how your father's gonna respond. And so I waited, not knowing, rehearsing what I was gonna say. And so just a special passage to me. So just uh, bear with me as I read the passage this morning. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his prosperity and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you receive us with open, welcome arms of grace when we come to you with our sin and our shame and all of our broken pieces. Thank you, Lord, that you take us in. Help us to show that grace to others as well the example that you have given to us. Now, Lord, we just pray as your word is taught this morning and the reading of your word that you would bless it. And not only would we hear and listen, but we would change our lives because of what we hear today. May your name be glorified in it all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel is scandalous. The gospel is scandalous. That that is the good news of Jesus Christ, how he welcomes sinners who repent and forgives them, not because of what they have done, but because of his grace. That message, it is scandalous and contradicts Everything that our culture preaches and teaches, the gospel is unique and, and for those who understand and get it, they go, this is unbelievable. And it can be, frankly, quite offensive. The gospel's scandalous. And if you've been around Christianity for a while, you probably know about this guy named Saul of Tarsus. We meet him in Acts chapter 7. And, and for those of you who don't know Saul of Tarsus, he's, he's this religious figure who, who was a Pharisee, one of these guys who hated the scandalous nature of the gospel because, because Saul had oriented his entire life around this idea that if you follow the Leviticus code of holiness, if you, if you separate yourself from big sinners, 
God would see you as holy. And so salvation came in part through segregation from all the people who were gross, yucky sinners. And Saul of Tarsus hated the gospel and everybody who stood for the gospel, which is why when we meet him in Acts chapter 7, he is watching a Christian get martyred. First Christian to ever die for their faith is named Stephen, there in Acts 7. And Saul is presiding over it. And if we could have asked Saul, yo man, how do you make sense of killing this guy named Stephen since you believe in the Ten Commandments? And he would have. He would probably say, well, just like in the Old Testament when there was some priest who loved the glory of God and would not allow sacrilegious activities. I'm just like that. Because Saul hated, hated the scandalous nature of the gospel. Now I know Saul isn't mentioned in our text this morning, but that attitude that Saul had, this attitude of, I am following the rules. I'm doing everything just right. Avoiding big sinners. So God must really be pleased with me because of my performance. That attitude is bullseyed on our text in Luke 15. As Jesus goes after anyone who has this religious attitude, thinking God is somehow pleased in our performance. You can see in Luke 15 verses 1 and 2 that there's these Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling. And, and why are they grumbling? It's because Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They're grumbling. The idea is they're talking to each other or talking to some of the disciples going, Oh my goodness, look who he's keeping company with. Frank, he's hanging out with Frank. Frank is going to his house for dinner. Does, does he not know what Frank was doing last night? And so the Pharisees and scribes are, are grumbling at Jesus because of the company he's keeping. Clearly, Jesus missed the memo that part of salvation comes from segregating yourself from big sinners. Well, this morning we're going to walk through Luke 15. And we're going to see Jesus confronting this attitude. And here's why it matters for us today. It is real easy in a church like this to point our fingers at other people or think to ourselves, those silly Pharisees or, man, that's Saul in Acts 7. What an idiot. Didn't they understand the gospel? But the truth is, far too many people in our church today has this very same smug, self-righteous attitude. And the purpose then of this text is to confront anyone who's here who has ignored their own wickedness and self-righteousness. For any in here who neither share in the joy of when sinners repent nor understand the very heart of God, Luke puts the scandalous grace of God on display in three parables. And all three of them are pointing to the sermon in a sentence. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Here it is. Don't ignore God's mercy to sinners. Don't ignore God's mercy to sinners. Instead, rejoice when the lost are found. 
And that's Luke 15 in a sentence. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke 15? Having already touched on verses 1 and 2 in this introduction, let's jump into Jesus' first parable. He has three. Here's the first one. Rejoice, the lost sheep was found. Rejoice, the lost sheep was found. There you can see in verse 3, Jesus begins with a highly relevant word picture for their culture. I don't think anybody here is actually a shepherd. Uh, just by show of hands, how many of you are full-time job, you are a shepherd? Yep, uh, still zero people at Mill Creek are full-time shepherds. But what they would have known then, and we may be foreign to, is if you have a flock of 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, everyone would have known culturally what to do. You take the 100, you put them in a safe, open pasture, and you leave those 99 to go and search for the one. That's what a good shepherd does. So all of them would have understood Jesus' word picture. So he leaves the 99, the shepherd leaves the 99, he goes looking for the one. And, and why did that one sheep wander off? Everybody would have known the answer to that. Maybe some of you who've been around Christianity, you already know the answer. The reason is because sheep are, they are stupid and dumb. That's exactly right. They, they're dumb. They're dumb sheep. Um, that's... That's the facts. And so the shepherd goes after that sheep who's lost and he, and he picks that sheep up and he carries that sheep back to the 99. And then you can see in the text what this shepherd does. He, he goes home, verse 6, and says to his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, the lost sheep has been found. The point then of this parable, verse 7, Jesus says, Just so... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, if you look at that last phrase with a technical eye, you, you may be thinking, wait, 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 no need for repentance? Pastor, is Jesus actually saying that those religious leaders have no need of repentance? No, not in the technical sense of needing no repentance. The context shows us Jesus is confronting these religious leaders who in their mind think they have no need for repentance, but it's actually their self-righteous attitude. Jesus is targeting, Marshall puts it way better than I can in his commentary when he writes, in light of the emphasis in Luke and Acts on the universal need of repentance, which Luke's established in chapter 3, verse 3, and the evil of humanity, which Luke establishes in Chapter 11, verse 13. This phrase is best understood as ironic for those who think they're righteous and have no need to repent. Point is, Luke's gospel proves Jesus isn't declaring these religious leaders righteous. Rather, Jesus' point in this first parable is that just like a shepherd and his neighbors will celebrate when the lost lamb is found. So heaven has a party too when Christ finds a lost and precious person. Well, first story done. Point made. Jesus moves to a second parable, verses 8 to 10. Rejoice, the lost coin was found. Look there in verse 8. and We find a woman who has ten coins. These coins are valuable. Each coin would be modern day, a couple hundred bucks. Oh no, she lost one. Oh no. 
So she does what we would do if we lost a couple hundred dollars in the house. It's like, it's time for spring cleaning and we're doing it now because I need that money. So she goes, she does this cleaning and, and just like the shepherd previously, she finds the coin. Verse 9, look in the text. She calls her friends and neighbors and says, come celebrate with me, I found the coin. And the point is right there in verse 10. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Simple enough, right? And are you seeing now how Jesus is inviting the religious leaders to have a change of heart? Quit your smug self-righteousness and instead join the angels in rejoicing when the lost is found. Two stories down, the third story is a doozy. If the first two stories are jabs, the third story is the knockout punch. Third story, the longest of the section, which means, kids, if you're thinking to yourself, man, he's got three points. He's already done with the first two. We are definitely getting out of here early. I, maybe we will, but this third is the longest and it's going to... It's where we're going to be the rest of our time. This third parable is so popular. Some of you, you maybe are very new to church, and even you've heard about the parable of the prodigal son. But do you understand that the way it's written is aimed at the religious leaders? The first half of the parable follows the younger of the two sons. Just to be clear, there are three characters, and we can see them there in verse 11. A father with his two sons, and the first half of the parable is following the younger son. So let's follow along as this younger son makes an absolute fool of himself in verse 12. Those of you who've studied this passage or have heard sermons on this before, you may Recall that the younger son's request for his share of the property was culturally saying, Hey, Dad, like, would you do me a solid and, like, die? Uh, hey, Dad, what I really want from you is not a relationship. What I really want from you is your cash. So would you just be dead so I could finally get my inheritance and do what I want? That's culturally what the younger son was saying, and it was an unforgivable offense. If you say this to your dad in those days, you are done for. And no way would you get any inheritance if you said that to your dad. And yet this father, he gives the inheritance. He actually splits his property between younger and older son, gives his younger son the cash. Well, verse 13, the younger son gets the money, immediately leaves for a far country. This is also such foolishness that the younger son would want to be in a different place far away from his dad. He goes to somewhere that would be akin to our Las Vegas, and he does what you do in Vegas if you're like a teenager, which is what he probably is. He is indulging himself in reckless living. See that there in verse 13, the religious leaders would have been imagining this younger son has a bunch of cash and he's spending it on prostitutes and everything in between which if you're a religious leader hearing this story even Jesus's story is making these religious leaders squirm and they're thinking can you even say that word and still be holy good grief Jesus what's wrong with you wash your mouth out with soap 
Well, to the story, verse 14, the younger son, problem is you run out of money when you live that way. And he runs out of money. And then he gets hit with a double whammy because there's a famine. So he's probably a teenager. He has no more money and there's no food. So he gets a job. Look in the text at his job, verse 15. He ends up feeding pigs. And in verse 16, he, he gets so hungry that, that he looks at that pig slop and he goes... Don't mind if I do. I mean, I'm kind of hungry in that, I mean, that half-eaten corn cob right there and the muck and mire. I mean, that would probably taste pretty good. Now, kids, I trust you know that real pigsties are not represented properly like in a show like Peppa Pig. My my kids like Peppa Pig with Daddy Pig. Mommy Pig, that's how they introduce themselves if you didn't know what Peppa Pig's all about. And in that little cartoon, these pigs, I mean, they dress nice. You know, there's times when Daddy Pig has on a sport coat, and that just is nothing like a real pig sty. Now, just in case, I, does anybody in here, do you actually run and operate right now a pig sty? You actually own and operate a pig sty. That's your full-time career job, yeah? No? Yeah. Nope, still, still zero people who do that, too. But I already knew that because I can just smell, <laughs> Yeah, I know that's nobody's job here, which is why whenever you meet somebody who has that job, you have, if you have a kid young enough, the first thing he's going to say real loud is, Dad, why do they smell so bad? <laughs> I've heard it called, it's the, it's the smell of money. If you work in a pigsty, it is not like Peppa Pig. It is nasty business. And Pigs are in mud, and they're dirty, and they're nasty, and, and, and you smell all the time, and you've got to be really hungry to be in that position, and then look at the pig slop, and then go, mm-mm-mm, I think I'd like to have lunch. Kids, if, if you're in that position, you're in a really bad place, and you need to call mom and dad. What happens in this situation, though, because culturally in this situation, it's not just a crummy job. You've got to understand, in Jewish culture, working at a pigsty, wanting to eat the pig's food, that is the lowest of the low. Okay, in case you're unfamiliar with Jewish culture, this is hitting rock bottom. And that's what had happened to this younger son. He had hit rock bottom. You, you don't get any lower. The cultural equivalent for us would be something like a person who's homeless who's addicted to heroin, has no friends, is so terribly sick, and has no money. That, I think, I think that's about the equivalent of where this person is culturally. But as it turns out, hitting rock bottom isn't the worst thing that can happen. A good word for anybody who's Hitting rock bottom or knows a person who hits rock bottom, hitting rock bottom isn't the worst thing that can happen. In, in fact, hitting rock bottom can actually be a gift. Because if you hit rock bottom, it gives you an opportunity. It, it forces you. It can force a person to have to do business with reality. It forces a person to think, am I really going to go down this road? Or, or, or am I going to turn, turn the page on this story? Am I going to write a new stories? I like the way one pastor makes this point about this younger son hitting rock bottom. He writes, when he came to himself, he came to his senses. 
when the younger son's incessant sinning had left him utterly bankrupt and hungry, he was able to think more clearly. And in that condition, he was a candidate for salvation. So look what happens. Verse 17, he's hit rock bottom. He came to himself and he said, Man, how many of my dad's hired servants have more than enough bread or food? But I perish here. I'm starving to death with hunger. 18, I will arise and go to my dad and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the younger son arose and came to his father. Church, what we see happening right here is called repentance. I know that's a $5 Christian word, but, but what it means is he has come to his senses and realized despite the cultural unforgivable sin against his dad, he needs to go home. He's repenting. He realizes I will no longer be a son, but that's okay. He realizes I won't have any authority like I used to have. That's okay. At least I will be around my dad and I will have food to eat. That's all I want. So he heads home. And my favorite part of the parable, look at verse 20, middle of 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now, how is it, church, that his father saw him from a long way off? Why doesn't it say, when the son walked around the barn, the father saw him? Or why doesn't it say, when the younger son knocked on the door, his father peeked around and saw him through the screen on the porch? Why, why didn't it say that? Well, the implication, of course, is the only way you can see somebody from a far way off is if you're looking. And I think what the master storyteller Jesus wants us to realize is that there was a father who was sitting and looking over the horizon, and he's looking with a deep ache in his heart, wondering, where's my son? Middle of verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Culturally, for a father like this to go run, very awkward, very cringy. Those religious leaders thinking, an old man running? Oh, my word. It'd be like some of you thinking that a pastor dances or something. I mean, we're basically like Baptists. Don't you know Baptists don't dance, Pastor? Yeah, okay, fine, we boogie. It's kind of awkward, that's what's happening with the dad there. And we already know that that, 
that son has prepared a speech. Remember, we looked at it in verse 17. So do you notice that the son goes right into the speech and he says to his dad, Father, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to be your son anymore. And do you notice what the father does in verse 22? Notice the father interrupts the speech. The, the younger son's speech does not get fully communicated. It's like he gets interrupted, and then the father doesn't even talk to his son first. Who does he talk to in verse 22? Talks to the servant. Now, I think the picture is, as the younger son has prepared his little monologue of contrition, dad's like, yeah, yeah, shut up. I need to make some, I need to make some plans. 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. How incredible. Moments earlier, the dad is suffering with a deep heartache, waiting for his son to come home, and now it's party time. Oh, and get this, the robe wasn't just a robe. I learned in my study for this sermon, the robe was a symbol that this young man was his son again. The robe was the father's way of saying, you can just stop all that hogwash about, I'm just going to be a servant for you, blah, 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 whatever. You're my son. He's my son. Put the robe on him. Oh, and get this, a ring wasn't just a ring. A ring communicated authority. The same authority you had before you made a fool of yourself and asked for me to be dead, I am reinstating your authority. You will be seen as my son with authority. Oh, and shoes, they weren't just shoes. Shoes were only for the family members of the master. Bond servants did not wear shoes. Sons wore shoes. Dad wasn't going to have any of that business of you're not going to have to be a son here. Nope. This will be the father's son. And church, if you're a religious leader and you're listening to this, you would think to yourself, that is scandalous. This kind of forgiveness is scandalous. And in fact, if you haven't thought about it for a while, just so you know, there is nobody in any world religion anywhere close to the father here. The, the kind of forgiveness that this father is offering this wretched younger son is unbelievable. And no other world religion has this kind of a figure for God. We're the only ones. Every other world religion would have treated this younger son at best as a bondservant. At best, fine, you can feed my pigs and if we have any leftovers for lunch, you can eat them. At best, you'd have to follow all the rules and then maybe, just maybe, the father would be willing to let you crawl your way back, but not with God. Now, I, we have to finish this parable and talk about the older son, but I got a sidebar real quick and just talk to anybody in here who is identifying with the younger son because if you're here and you, if you're honest with yourself, Realize that in some way or another, you've hit rock bottom. 
if in some way you are identifying with the younger son and you realize, Pastor, I've made a total mess of my life. Whether you're, whether you're seven years old, or 17 years old, or 77 years old, whether you've never been to church till today or you've been to church your whole life, if you're here and you're this younger son and you've made a mess of your life, all you have to do is repent and the Father would be waiting for you and be ready to celebrate. Like right now, there could be a party in heaven if you would own it and repent. I know that repentance is, that, is a big word, but it's actually really simple. Repentance is, is, is agreeing with Jesus and saying, like a sheep, you've been really dumb. Repentance is, is like the coin admitting, I am lost and I can't do anything to find myself. The, the coin had no power to be able to be found. It depended on, on somebody to find it. it, it Repentance means acknowledging like the younger son, you've been a fool. But if you would go home, the father would be waiting for you and want to have a party for you today. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to analyze your sin and pretend like it was a good idea. It wasn't. Admit it. God already knows. He knows all. Admit your sin. I know it's a tough pill to swallow to just say, man, I have, I have lived my way and it has not worked. But it is a pill anyone in here who has a Christian has had to swallow. And while the truth will make you mad at first, it will set you free. So admit it. And you could, you could be reunited with the Father who wants to forgive you. And welcome you into his family. Well, that's if you identify with the younger brother. Let's move back to what this whole section is about, which is confronting the older brother attitude, the religious leaders. Verse 25, let's finish with the older son. Notice in there he's walking in from the field after another full day's work when, when he hears a party happening and he asks his servants what's going on. And he learns his younger brother has come home. And his response, verse 28, he's mad. The older brother is angry like Saul of Tarsus was at Christians. Because as far as the older brother is concerned, his dad is being unfair. You don't throw a party for that brother. Actually, what he says is that son of yours. You don't throw a party and get the good T-bone steaks for that guy who was out spending your money recklessly. He even spent it on prostitutes, Dad. I don't know how he knew that's what happened, but somehow the older brother got a telegram that that's where this younger brother spent it. I don't know how he knew, but he, just so you know, Dad, that's where the money went. And you're going to have the T-bones? The older brother's so angry, so bitter. Verse 29, look at, look at this bitterness. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
This is, of course, Jesus getting to the heart of those smug, self-righteous religious leaders. It's as if Jesus is looking each of them in the eye and he is saying to them, here's your problem, friends. Religious leaders, here's your problem. You're so mad at God. You think God is not being fair to you because God welcomes sinners. And while you thought you were on the inside with God, this actually reveals you're on the outside. And you need to do business with your heart with God because God's love isn't fair. God's love is scandalous. So the older brother, he seems to be outside the home, outside the party, and he seems to be gone. I guess gone isn't technically accurate, though, because look how the parable ends. Look at this cliffhanger. Like, look in 32. It, it ends with, with the father saying, you've always been with me, and everything I have is yours, which is true, right? I was reminded, verse 12 of Luke 15, the father has already divided the estate. The father has given the younger son his portion. He's already given the older brother his portion. He's divided it so the older brother knows what it is. So when the older brother's going, you didn't even give me some goat, the, the father's like, yes, all of this is yours, son. It's all yours. But it's right to celebrate your brother who was dead and lost and now is alive and found. What, what Jesus is doing then, and the reason that we don't have a verse 33 that tells us what the older brother does is because it's Luke's way of leaving us on a cliffhanger and allowing us to try to think through how will we respond. Because, because the father has mercy for the younger son. We already saw that. And what this is is mercy for the older son as well. It's mercy because there is an invitation to come into the party. And it leaves us having to consider for ourselves, what will we do? We who are so righteous and full of self-inflated ego who think that God owes us and, and man, if God, God really saved the people who deserved it, why well, he would save us, right? Because look how wonderful we are. Here then the storytelling mastery of Jesus for having addressed the Pharisees and scribes and their grumbling. He's giving them the most incredible of invitations. Will they rejoice that the younger son came home? Finishing our chapter and confronting all of us here who have a Saul of Tarsus attitude. For any here who are self-righteous and think because of their obedience, God owes you something, you must repent which is our first application. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. Repent of self-righteousness. This is Luke's primary goal in Luke 15. To invite us to look in the mirror and to find the ways that we, like the religious leaders, are infected with this disease of self-righteousness. It's one that can unknowingly cultivate inside of us and, and it's one that will leave many people destined for hell. 
See, if you're here and at judgment, your plan is to tell the Lord when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? If your plan is to say, well, good grief, Lord, look at all of my friends and what wicked sinners they are. Did you notice I'm two standard deviations closer to holiness than all of my friends? So clearly you should let me in because I've segregated myself from how awful they are and I've lived so good. That response will send you to hell. And there are so many people I trust who will be in hell who think they deserved heaven. And what Jesus is doing right now then is inviting you to repent of your self-righteousness and to realize you bring nothing to the table worthy of salvation. The only thing you contribute to this entire equation is sinfulness. Uh, what do you bring to the table, Pastor Jeremy, that contributes to your salvation? Well, I bring the sin. You do everything else. Now, this idea here may be a little bit tricky, though, because there may be a few of you who go, oh, man, I, I don't think I'm guilty of self-righteousness. I, I, uh, am I guilty of self-righteousness? And, and what I've noticed is what happens in the day-to-day -day for so many of us is we put these frameworks on, and maybe it's not the book of Leviticus that we put on other people like the religious leaders in our text, but I think all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, everybody loves to put a moral code on their friends, and it's just we invent whatever moral code it is. And so some people like to think through the politics framework. So they go, oh, you're that party? Oh, you're awful. I'm awesome because I subscribe to a different politic um, than you do. Or, or people like to judge one another on um, issues of conscience. Oh, you listen to that music? Well, I would never listen to that music, so I'm awesome and you're awful. Uh, oh, you watch those movies? You watch those shows? You go to those kinds of things? Oh, well, well that, that explains a lot. Honey, do not be around that person. We're good. They're bad. Now, don't get me twisted. If there are things clearly in the scripture that it forbids or commands, we have to be about those. And I'm not asking you to get squishy on what Jesus calls righteous or unrighteous. But for all that stuff he doesn't talk about, I'm saying quit putting frameworks on people and then putting them in a good or bad bucket. You know, they read those books and that obviously clarifies why we're good and they're bad. Or, oh, they go to that church where they don't open their Bibles for the sermon, so, oh, there it is. We're good, you're bad. And if you have this self-righteous attitude, you, you need to repent of it. Here'd be like a litmus test. If you have a friend who says to you, if you have a friend who says, will you pray for my son? Because my son is homeless and is on heroin. And you think to yourself, my kid would never do that. And I think you're guilty of this. The truth is, the only thing that separates any of us from being homeless and hooked on heroin, it's the grace of God. That's the only difference. And if in your heart you think, oh, I would never be that person, then you don't get it. Sin is that deadly. And you haven't, you haven't done something to create holiness in yourself. The only thing you've received is mercy, and that's what would lead us then to mercifully pray for the son who's on the heroin. That's the kind of self-righteous, smug attitude we need to repent of. That's application 
number one. That's primary. The second one that follows is rejoice when the lost are found. Second application, rejoice when the lost are found. In all three stories, did you notice the common denominators? Something gets lost, something gets found, and then they have a party. And what I'm saying is we ought to be the kind of people who when the lost gets found, we have a party. One way we do that around here is baptism, but frankly, if I'm going to be a little bit critical of us, I think our baptism celebration is pretty lame. I mean, a few of us will whistle, but even then it's like, you're whistling in church. Don't you whistle in church. This is a church service. I saw how some of y'all celebrated when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. I know a lot of you are happy about it, but not everybody was. But I saw how you celebrated. And I don't know that if in a thousand years from now, we're actually going to still be celebrating that there was a Super Bowl victory in Kansas City. But I know for sure what makes heaven have a party, and that's when a person who was destined for hell is saved and moved from death to life. And I'm not asking you to do something that's different than what you normally do. All I'm saying is we could use a similar attitude that I saw at the parade and at the Super Bowl victory when somebody actually makes an eternal decision to follow Jesus as their Savior. So I'm just asking us to get a little bit more rejoicing, Mill Creek. Maybe we could have a little bit of a party when one of your blessed friends comes to know Jesus because that's a big deal. Repent of self-righteousness, rejoice when lost or found. Finally, love those far from Christ. I think the most important verse in the whole book of Luke is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. According to Luke, that's what Jesus was about, seeking and saving the lost. And have you noticed in the book of Luke, the people that Jesus is hanging around are the people that your grandma warned you about. Turns out, our job isn't to make grandma proud with our friends, but to honor Jesus with our friends. Now look, if you're 13 and trying to talk your mom into giving you a one-way ticket to Las Vegas, I think that's a bad idea. All right, so there's a place and there's a time for discernment. There's, it's worth considering who's influencing who, but if you are solid in your worldview and if you believe in Jesus Christ and that thing is established, then you might do well to keep some company that would make the neighbors talk. Because that's what's getting Jesus in trouble, allegedly, is he's got these religious leaders who go, oh my goodness, Frank is hanging out with him. He's going to eat supper with Frank? Are you kidding me? We would do well to have some friends who don't know Jesus and to invest in their lives. Do you see how scandalous Jesus' company was? And yet the gospel is so scandalous too. For us then, I'm wondering, are you in relationship with people who are far from Christ? Like if you're here and you don't actually know well somebody who is far from Christ, you need to make a friend who doesn't know Jesus. But for those of you who are friends with people who are, who are lost and don't know Jesus, are you praying for them? Do you care about them? One of my concerns, one, one, of, my, one of my speculations is that, is that in some ways, church, we don't care about the lost. That's the only thing I can conclude 
which, which means I suppose we don't actually believe in hell. We don't really believe that hell is forever and it's, and it's conscious punishment. Because if we really believed in hell, and if we really believed it was forever, wouldn't we be sharing the gospel, the scandalous nature of the gospel, with as many people as we could? And if they reject it, okay, but God forbid they never hear it. There are parents in here who have a child who has gone rogue, a child who is prodigal. And some of these parents have confided in staff and elders and are hurting for their kid. And, and the staff and elders are coming alongside those parents and we're trying to pray with them that God would have mercy. And, and I so appreciate the heart of parents who have prodigal kids and I wish that heart would, would spread to all of us who call Mill Creek home, that we would have a heart for the lost the way these parents care for their kids. Because there are parents who don't sleep some nights because they know the destination of their kids, and it's got a break, and they are praying, praying, and that is a burden. But oh, that God would give us a burden for the lost. The way that happens, of course, is when we realize how Jesus saved us. Because when you see how Jesus saved us, it changes your heart and makes you want to be gracious and love those far from Christ. Because you see how Jesus loved us when we were far from Christ. For of course that's what happened to Saul of Tarsus. How is it that the most religious and smug, self-righteous person, Saul of Tarsus, transformed into this one we know, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament? Jesus went after this guy. And it's the picture of the older brother who can be transformed. 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly, Paul writes, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. See what Paul got that we need to get is that he was the kind of son who didn't foolishly leave his father to go to Vegas, nor was he the kind of son who thought he was holy and righteous and had earned it for some other reason. No, Christ truly was the righteous son who went looking to bring other children into the family. Christ went looking for the father's lost sons and daughters. He's looking for you. Mill Creek, the gospel is scandalous. Don't ignore God's mercy to sinners. Instead, rejoice when the lost are found. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for Luke 15. Spirit, for those who are the prodigal younger son, save. For those who are the older self-righteous, convict. Pray we'd all repent. Pray you would do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.